Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are, anywhere. Thank you. And we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with you, I'll outline how we can spend our time together and then you can just relax and enjoy yourselves for the rest of the week. Um, A few notices from me and then I shall reflect on the rise or the return of the right-wing populists. There is a pattern forming again. Uh, Maybe it didn't go away. Some thought after the fall of Trump, when Biden beat Trump, etc., we had seen the high point of these right-wing populists. Certainly not. And we need to look at the factors that have led again to these figures rising to power. So I'll be reflecting on that and then returning to some of your fantastic questions, some that didn't get asked during the uh, live Patreon event we held last uh, Thursday for Patreon subscribers and some of your, I was going to say, normal questions, implying those from that Patreon session were abnormal and they weren't abnormal. They were brilliant. Um, so we've got a lot to cram in. So let's start with that. Thanks so much, those of you who tuned in to the live Patreon session. We had a wide-ranging discussion, as we always do with these live events. And if you want to see it, you can subscribe to Patreon. It's still there, recorded. And Patreon subscribers who couldn't make it obviously can get access to it. And yeah, what a great Christmas present. Subscribe to Patreon, a present for yourself or uh, friends and family. And while on the topic of Christmas, uh, I did this with the last book, and I'm going to do it again. So my new book, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to Liz Truss, is out at the moment. And um, with the last one, I suggested that if people, you know, in the cooperative wanted to give it to friends or family as a present, and they wanted the equivalent of a signed copy, just email me with the message you want and your address, and I will do it on a label which you could then uh, and sign it, and then you can attach it to the book. It's just as good actually as having a signed copy. I mean, it cost me a fortune in labels and stamps, but obviously it's great, great also for for the book to be handed over in various ways. It was in the Times Books of the Year over the weekend, uh, which is always a, a good thing. Although I was described by whoever suggested the book as the uh, elder statesman of political columnists. Well, as you know, we are all still rocking away uh, at the height of our youth. Um, So there was that inaccuracy. But anyway, it was in the books of the year. And um, yeah, it explores the turning points from 1945 with the election of the Labour government. It looks at various uh, international crises that seem to put Britain on a new course, the Suez crisis, Uh, you know, Brexit and the joining Europe, Um, Iraq. Uh, But actually things turned out very differently and there is a kind of theme running through it, but I think it helps to make sense of the madness we're in at the moment. So that's one festive message. And the other is, as you probably know by now, the last live show of the year, King's Place, on um, Monday, December the 18th where, uh, yeah, it's the time to look back at an extraordinary 12 months and peer into the future. Next year is an election year, almost certainly. And, uh, yeah, can we see any shapes 
forming. It's quite interesting. I began to wonder whether there'll be a Labour landslide. I don't usually work on that assumption because I've been brought up with Labour losing most elections. But I was in a walking group. You don't know the other people. You turn up somewhere and you, we all go walking. It was wonderful on a beautiful, crisp day. Anyway, we're walking. And this guy came and said, so I listened to the podcast. Uh, and we were talking. He said, I think the polls are wrong at the moment. And I thought he was then going to say the Tories will do much better, you know, which is a bit of a cliched response to the polls. And he said, um, I think they're overestimating Tory support. And he went on to say, I've been a Tory supporter for 40 years. Uh, I've been very active in the party for 40 years and I can't vote for them next time. And I know lots in the same position. And then I said, so are you not voting or how are you going to vote? He said, I'm going to vote Labour. I said, have you ever done that? He said, no, no, I've always voted Conservative. But I'm in despair about, I mean, he was a Remainer. He believes in infrastructure, things that sort of for ideological reasons Sunak is uh, opposed to, Um, horrified by the right. And he said he'd prefer a centre-left government than the Tories. And I thought, God, if there are many people like him around... Maybe there will be one of those big swings. Anyway, we will look ahead at uh, King's Place to the coming 12 months and have some fun as well. You never know. Uh, It being then a week away from Christmas. So there we are. Those are the festive notices. The book, just email me at steverick14icloud.com and um, tell me what the message is that you want uh, and your address. And I'll write the message, sign it and post that to you, and you can put it in the book. Get moving, because the post is crap these days. Um, As we know, nothing works. By the way, another example of that, uh, that walk where I met this uh, 40-year lifelong Tory, we were all at Paddington, along with half of the population, trying to get trains all cancelled. All the bloody trains were cancelled to Reading, Cornwall, all the places, people in complete despair, no one knowing how long the cancellations were going to last. We were able to get to our walk via the Elizabeth line that was still kind of running. Um, but you just, you just every day you go out and think, oh, what's going to happen today? Anyway, uh, so those are the kind of notices, questions to come, but a few reflections on the rise of the right-wing populists or the re-rise, something I follow with great interest. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Rise of the Outsiders, and it was a very interesting experience writing it because I was actually writing the bulk of it during the presidential election that uh, Trump won. But while I was writing it, the assumption of many was that Hillary Clinton was going to win, which would have affected the tone of the book. When Trump won, uh, we had to, um, well, I, we, I'm talking about we, it was just me. Um, It wasn't a collaborative effort like, um, uh, I don't know, Rachel Reeves' latest book or something like that. Sorry, no, no, it's not fair. She's had enough hassle over that book. Um, uh, Yeah, I had to kind of reconfigure it because what a rise that was. And of course, the model there uh, is part of the explanation as to what is happening now. What have they got in common? Uh, Millet in Argentina, uh, the likely next ruler of Holland. And in a way, because it's Holland, it's even harder to kind of get your head around it. Geert Wilders is not 
nailed on that he will. There'll be endless negotiations now about who forms a coalition. But there he is in pole position. Um, We've got the possible return of Trump. We've got the possible return in some form or another of Farage. There he is in the jungle, becoming prominent again. Um, He he was on GB News every day, but that doesn't guarantee prominence. But being in the jungle gives him a new kind of television fame. So what is happening? Well, that, of course, is part of the explanation, depressing though it is. These so-called outsiders are incredibly well-known, and that's an important factor in their rise. And they've been defined often by something other than politics as, say, Farage now will be exposed to a wider audience in the jungle. And such is the perverse state of uh, British politics. He will no doubt be helped by his appearances in the jungle. And some people, you know, you have to phone in or text to who you want to keep in the jungle and all the rest of it. Some people watching that uh, will get involved and text, oh, let's get Farage in or out and all the rest of it. And they won't bother voting in a general election. So, you know, the power of celebrity television is, in many cases, more intoxicating for voters than a general election. And uh, Farage, although in fairness to him, he did not follow the celebrity route in the same way that Boris Johnson did to the same extent, is now doing so. Um, He basically is a politician to the end of his fingertips, but... This celebrity route will give him a prominence. Johnson rose through Have I Got News For You and being funny. Um, He was not well known for his political depth or coherence, um, but people laughed with him or at him. No, with him. That's the thing. Uh, When he was mayor of London, upside down on a trapeze thing or whatever he was up to. And... um, So it is with uh, the new president of Argentina. Millet was known more as a celebrity, impersonating Mick Jagger on television, than he was as a coherent, experienced politician. And of course, the same with Trump, who uh, in his rise to the top, his television celebrity was fundamental. And in each of these cases... They were able to pursue a kind of anti-politics theme. They weren't part of the familiar political establishment, i.e. religiously standing for election. Uh, Wilders being an exception to this, he's been prominent in politics for a long time, but not tested by the responsibilities of power which helps in terms of making pledges and promises from the safe distance of not being in power. But these others were kind of celebrities who defined themselves against politics, really. And this is why, uh, forget about the substance of their programmes, though we'll come to that, uh, why the rise of these right-wing populists is so dangerous. Basically, They get there by appearing to be not part of politics, an outsider, uh, anti-politics. They are for the people against politics, rather like the Brexit juxtaposition, you know, the people versus parliament, the people versus the judges. They are for the people, but against the familiar contours of politics. 
Now, why that is so dangerous is where does that lead? If uh, democratic politics is viewed with such disdain that voters start turning to those who define themselves against it, we are in a dangerous place. You know, I, having to do live events at the moment, like these live shows I do, uh, with the hell being played out in the Middle East and not wanting the evening to be turned into an intense row about Israel, Palestine, and so on. I mean, the one point I make is there are two ways of resolving disputes or uh, carving a course. Uh, one is violence, where you kill and terrorize to prevail. The other is politics, democratic politics, where you uh, put forward a position, you argue within a party and between parties, and you try and prevail. And if that latter mode of conduct just invites contempt, and therefore people turn to celebrities to guide them into a better world, that in itself is dangerous. But the programs themselves are also inevitably dangerous because they promise so much with a sweeping self-confidence that um, it can become intoxicating. We know all the factors, economic crises, immigration, asylum seekers, which are different from immigration, they all feed into an argument that lends itself to simplistic assertions. And when they are not tested, they can become very, very intoxicating. Um, so uh, Trump, with that slogan, Make America Great Again, had an instant appeal to voters who don't follow politics very often, who feel uh, detached from their elected leaders. Here is someone kind of inviting them to join him, make America, make gives it agency. Um, uh, it, it's a fantasy because it's ill-defined. But coherence is not something that binds these people. So, for example, Millet is promising privatizations, a much smaller state, and so on. And Trump has hailed this as make Argentina great again. But when Trump first got elected, he was pledged to massive public spending increases. He was closer to Johnson's populism of cakeism of wanting tax cuts and claiming to be anti-government, anti-state, but also planning to spend billions. He didn't really do it, but that's what he offered. In each case, they will be tested by reality already or already have been. Uh, Millet's set of propositions, which on the surface to some people feel like a change of direction that will lead them to the promised land will become a form of chaotic madness. The sweeping privatizations, look at the privatizations in Britain and uh, the chaos and uh, costs involved in sustaining a model that has become increasingly incredible. And a smaller state will mean the poorer people who voted for this character because they liked him, they found him funny, they found in him a connection between the distant world of politics and their lives, will find that in his belief for a smaller state, 
they become even more detached and poorer. And how he then responds to that will be very interesting because uh, disillusionment can come very quickly with these populists. It's very interesting with Farage. He's never been tested by real power. He hasn't been even in the House of Commons. It's all this talk about him returning as leader of the Conservative Party. The one reason why I think it is unlikely is that although on many levels it would appeal to Farage, I think he will run a mile from the level of scrutiny, management, master of detail of a range of policies that even in the current world where we've had Truss and Johnson, that still does apply to some extent. So um, when tested by power, the populace are challenged. But there are two other factors, I think, that explain the rise of the populace. And this one of them is why in this podcast I've said so many times, it's really important to place the likes of David Cameron on the right of British politics. You can agree with him or disagree with him. But here is someone who is a Eurosceptic, um, who believes really in the Thatcherite smaller state. He's not that far from Farage. I mean, Farage is further to him. I mean, Cameron was a Eurosceptic, but a Remainer. Farage wanted out, etc. But there's not a huge gap. But if you place Cameron on the centre, Farage is sort of perfectly acceptable centre-right politics. Whereas if you accurately place Cameron on the right, you then see Farage where he is further to the right, in, in the sort of outer bit of the right. So placing these people are important. And that explains partly the rise of Trump as well. The Republican Party had already moved a long way to the right without people really kind of commenting or noticing. The second President Bush was way to the right of his father. I mean, Blair adored him and liked him because Blair kind of liked people with power who seemed personally reasonable. Bush, compared to what followed, was personally reasonable, as in Trump. But until you root these people who are in the so-called mainstream, you cannot get a handle of how far to the right they are moving with these other figures like... um, Trump, Millet, and so on, Wilders. Wilders is going to be very interesting because, I mean, uh, I got quite a few emails saying, is this the bad side of uh, proportional representation? Uh, The fact that he um, can rise to the top, the biggest party, but by no means near an overall majority. But I think it kind of points in a different direction. He is now going to have to work out how to manage power or to get to power through that parliamentary system. And on the whole, these populists are really challenged when they have to do that. You know, how is he going to form a government if he is to form a government? How will he work with other parties? You can explain the rise of him very easily, even in a progressive country like Holland, less susceptible to the kind of things that we have in Britain, like a raucous, noisy right-wing media, which then influences the BBC, and so on. But still, he will have to deal with other parties. 
So when tested, I think some of the populism starts to be challenged in a very fundamental way. But the other reason why the path is clear for these people is that the so-called mainstream parties have failed to put a case for what they believe in. It was very interesting writing that book, The Rise of the Outsiders, and watching Hillary Clinton, who was in a different world to Trump in terms of depth, ability, insight. Um, But she never framed a language around what she believed. No counter-slogan to make America great again. And certainly, I think, the issue with centre-left parties not least the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, is this fear of framing arguments based on its values. Labour now are basically fighting a campaign saying, look, the framework is more or less in place. We will be more competent than the Conservatives. Competence is the pitch. And I understand why they do that. It could lead to a landslide, as I was saying earlier. But... It clears all the ideological space for these um, populists who don't have detailed policy, who aren't competent, can't put claim to competence because they've never really been near the centre of politics. But they have the space to put simplistic arguments about kicking out all the asylum seekers and immigrants and um, privatising everything and that will free people. So until the left parties seize terms, you know, it's a theme of this podcast, seize terms like freedom and explain why the state can free and liberate people, deal in a grown-up way with this debate about migration. It's difficult, but not impossible. You see, I think the debate about migration lends itself to all the slogans that have been so potent for the right, um, for the centre-left, take back control of the borders. You know, I think if we are honest about saying, right, yeah, the big thing is we are in control. We can decide the numbers we want to come in. And the reason, or one of the reasons, why it's high, it's too high at the moment, those figures with our creaking public services are challenged, although, of course, part of the reasons why it's so big is we need them. And You know, we can't get the Europeans after the Johnson-Frost Brexit deal. So we need them here to run the public services. However, what they should say is, say, look, we are in control, so we will plan we will have a rough idea of how many we will need. And I think it's this sense of being in control that it can become a kind of issue where you can engage with voters about their fears, partly reasonable, partly irrational, partly racist, and win some of these arguments. But framing arguments, framing narratives, is not just a bonus in politics. I think it's a precondition to a sustained period of power for the centre-left and challenging, you know, Farage, Braverman in Britain and these characters that have risen. 
see, with Biden, he's had a reasonably successful presidency. He's too old and looks too old. But can you think of many arguments you've heard from Biden framing the four years he's had and what he will do for the next four years? I know it doesn't really kick in yet, that sort of element of the presidential contest. But Trump's got a clear field at the moment to say what he wants. And it's nonsense, but it is accessible nonsense. And so counter-narratives, use of language, and then link that use of language to policies. Um, And they haven't done it for years, uh, certainly the mainstream left. And until they do, they will always be vulnerable to the rise of the populace from the right. Anyway, there are a few reflections I'll be very interested to hear from you as well. And now, I apologise for my voice. I'm feeling fine, actually, but the voice is a bit uh, uh, croaky. I could do a deep voice and speak like this, Um, but I won't because um, it'll be a sign of madness. So anyway, let's now go to your questions. So just a reminder, if you want to join in our never-ending debate, as I say, Bob Dylan's on a never-ending tour, so am I actually, live all over the place. Uh, But we are also having a never-ending discussion in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And I say, if you want me to sign uh, labels with a message for books for Christmas presents, that's the email as well. So I'm going to begin, if it's okay with all of you, on uh, some of the questions we didn't get to, to the uh, live Zoom on uh, Patreon the other night. We had loads of questions where we actually saw people on the screen. It's always exciting. And other questions in the chat. And I didn't have time to get to all of those. I'm going to begin with some of them. Holly Stafford uh, wrote from the uh, Patreon Zoom the other night. Do you think people will fall for the tax cut diversions um i'm thinking not but always ready to be disappointed i i holly i don't think they will it was very interesting the day after the papers it was they were so split all the tory papers hailing the tax cuts and the times saying you know the the tax burden falls where the tax burden is rising the times pumps out Tory propaganda in the build-up to an election and it's beginning to do so. Not beginning, it's continued to do so. Dangerous, uh, because the BBC again see the Times as an impartial paper and etc. But I think there is a sort of anti-Tory mood now. Remember, there wasn't that long ago when Boris Johnson gained Hartlepool and uh, appeared to be omnipotent, really. Um, uh, and you, you did begin to wonder whether England would ever shift again. But when England shifts, I wondered that after 1992, uh, whether uh, we were in a situation now where basically there was one-party rule um, and the only significant things were the internal dynamics within that party, the Tory party. Uh, at 97, Labour won a landslide. So I think that sort of anti-Tory mood has come back uh, Partygate, the Liz Truss experiment, Sunak's surprising political ineptitude has all, uh, and, and indeed uh, outdated ideological instincts, 
ideology is important in politics, um, have all combined, I think, to make it um, unlikely that they will. Um, Hugh from Aberdeen, this again is from the Patreon questions. Uh, Keir Starmer's immediate reaction to Israel-Gaza uh, was this traditional centrist but slightly pro-Israeli attitude. Wasn't a more nuanced position called for from the outset. Um, yeah, I think it was. I think he realizes that now. And I think uh, it became much more balanced with his Chatham House speech, uh, Hugh. Carrying on... Um, yeah, David Squires, tax cuts went, there's a lot about, very interesting, you know, the, the, why tax cuts when nothing works in the country and public services are on their knees. I thought that again when I was at Paddington seeing all these trains cancelled signs on Saturday morning. There was virtually no mention of public services in the autumn statement, which is traditionally meant to be more about public spending than tax. We're in a weird place at, at the moment. Um Tom Reed asked, can you reflect on the economic inheritances of Labour governments, 45, 64 and 74? How bad were they? As Labour often seemed to fail in government because of the economic situations they inherited. Well, each were epic challenges, especially 45 and 74, Tom. I mean, 45 post-war uh, basically, the, the, Britain was in an economic crisis from day one of the Labour government. They had to do a deal with the America to borrow money. It was a tough, tough deal, which um, helped Labour speed ahead with their famous reforms of 45, but then had consequences which led to other economic crises and were a factor in Attlee being in power for only six years. You compare that to the Tory government after 79, who were there for 18 years. Um, so, yeah, 74, terrible. Um, the the three-day week had happened, industrial turmoil, raging inflation. Uh, 64, not much better, uh, to be honest. A bit better, but they had to devalue uh, in 67, and Harold Wilson never recovered. So big, big challenges. Although, in fairness, Tory governments too have inherited huge economic challenges. I mean, Britain has not been economically healthy for, uh, uh, you know, you could argue about bits of the 80s, but we forget with the 80s, we had North Sea oil wasted and many recessions, more than one recession in that period of apparently the Thatcherite miracle. And even in 97, yeah, the economy was growing, but public services were on their knees. So, yeah, the British economy is not and has not been robust for a long, long time. Tom Webb wonders whether there'll be another reshuffle before the election, possibly to replace Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor. I wonder about that. I know the speculation that Jeremy Hunt wants to stand down from his seat um, and that um, they want a fresh-faced Chancellor for the election. Kind of doing it a few months, maybe weeks before an election, it's not easy. It's not easy. I doubt if it would make any difference to the Tories' fortunes. But there could be. No one knows for sure what is going to happen over the next 12 months. Uh, Peter Tarrington wonders, following on from your belief in great political leaders needing to be teachers and your oft-used example of Thatcher of one of those, how would you counter someone who offered her brilliantly relatable, though obviously flawed, narrative 
about the country's economy should be run like a household. Yeah, well, Peter, I've mentioned this in past episodes. She was a teacher, and that was one of her lessons. As you say, it was economic nonsense. The state is not the same as a household or her father's shop in Grantham. But that was how she framed monetarism. And it's a good example of how you have to frame arguments to explain why you are acting in the way you are. Um, Now, I I think Labour could be bolder on several fronts at the moment. But if they're not going to be, explain why. You could do it. You can frame it and say, look, we are going to be radical. Point to me a a radical centre-left government who's been able to be radical when there's instability in the economy. And therefore, a stable economy must be our first aim in order to be radical. I mean, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to say all the time why you are doing what you're doing, not just assert. Um, and she did it, I have to say, brilliantly and instinctively. And it was simplistic nonsense, a lot of it. But it kind of made sense in that it linked to her policies. So she would say all that. My father would never spend more uh, than he earned in his shop in Grantham and a country must never spend more than it earns. And then she outlined monetarism and spending cuts, but she contextualized it. Um, okay, and James Newman from uh, the Patreon Zoom, uh, why don't Labour boost their social media presence? It seems an open goal to me. Actually, I, did, I thought, James, I think their social media stuff it's quite good. I see their tweets and so on. It's very active. And I know it's a priority as it is with all the parties now, with the decline of newspapers, the very fractured broadcasting environment. Uh, social media is a huge priority. Okay, well, look, those were some of the questions on the chat that we didn't get to live. And now over to some of your emails. There's one from Susan Brown, who was on the live session. And Susan says, as a regular listener, but now a fairly new paid-up member of the Rock and Roll Patreon cooperative, I joined the very compelling web chat. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was good. It was fun. I think we need to develop it so more of you can get on the screen and we can have more of a discussion. Uh, but I'll discuss that with the brilliant Podmasters and Anne-Marie, who was there uh, coordinating the event on Thursday. Um, and she said, I listened with much interest, but unfortunately, my first question came to me towards the end of the time. Um, as a response to the problem of voter apathy towards elections, do you think compulsory voting, along with the teaching of modern politics in schools, might encourage voters to take more interest in politics in the UK? I think it's a good question, uh, Susan, and I do, and I think it should happen. And I'll go much further. I think we should have uh, citizens' uh, juries in uh, the UK. Um, in the same way, you know, in Ireland, they prepare for various referendums by having citizens' juries and people become much more informed. And every possible mechanism to encourage greater voter engagement should be adopted. And I think it would it would help a lot. Because as I say at the moment, you'll have people voting for Farage in the jungle and they're not bothering to vote in a general election. Not many, but some. 
and uh, it, it's very depressing. And and I do find, I you know, obviously, I, I don't know what it's like to the same extent in other countries, but the level of indifference and therefore ignorance to what's going on and making connections as to why our daily lives are what they are and what's happening, say, at Westminster. You don't become anti-Westminster. Uh, you, be, you, you, you try and recognise that there are reasons why these are happening and, uh, and act accordingly. But um, so, yeah, I think all of that would be a very good thing in schools. I mean, I don't know what is compulsory at the moment, probably maths and uh, English literature. Is that compulsory? Anyway, uh, yeah, politics, current affairs, it should be absolutely on the uh, curriculum. Now, I mentioned on our live time together that we were going to hear from the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who is based in Dublin, but originally comes from Northern Ireland. And he and uh, one or two of our other members of the cooperative have had occasionally, um, how should we put them, constructive debates about whether the DUP are pragmatic or not. Paul thinks they are, and he now points to another what he sees as an encouraging development. Uh, while I was back up home in Northern Ireland, I noticed that something appears to be bubbling up with regard to the possibility of the Northern Ireland executive returning to work. A few days ago, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, spoke of the real possibility that Stormont could return before Christmas. This view seems to have built up ahead of steam. On Monday... Peter Robinson, the former DUP First Minister of Northern Ireland, gave a round of interviews to Northern Irish media, making a firm case for the DUP to come back to Stormont sooner rather than later. I know in a previous email to the podcast, I spoke of a pragmatic wing of the DUP. I also appreciate that many will find it hard to believe that such a thing exists. But we now have Peter Robinson, a DUP grandee, making a pragmatic case for a deal. I assume this is to give Sir Geoffrey Donaldson some political cover, to close off a deal with Whitehall, and to soften the ground for a potential announcement of going back to work in January. The difficulty is that Sir Geoffrey will have to sell any deal to a very hardline rump in the party. Whilst nobody can ever say something will definitely happen, especially in Northern Ireland, if we read beneath the lines, something appears to be happening. My own opinion, for what it's worth, is that the sooner they go back in, the better. Watch this space for movement before Christmas. Well, there we are. A bit of good news uh, for the podcast. That assembly needs to be up and running again. Uh, power vacuums are always uh, fragile, dangerous. And um, so that is encouraging. And, uh, you know, when you're having to work with other parties, expediency is an essential part of your political repertoire so now i know some of you think there is not much evidence of that in that wing of the northern ireland politics uh, but paul has detected it before and now so let's wait and see thank you paul for keeping us informed with that it's very hopeful and interesting Paul cooper writes the current conservative party seems to have several factions vying for attention in your knowledge of past UK elections, does a divided, factionalised party ever win? It's a good question, and the answer is no. And, of course, it explains partly why the Conservatives are in such difficulty at the moment. Um, there, there are 
nearly always divisions, tensions within political parties. There are within Labour at the moment, but they're not very often on the surface because there is a discipline to Labour, this hunger to win a general election. But with the Conservatives, they've won so many. Uh, they'll have been in power for 14 years by the time of the election. Uh, they are very much on display. And I can't think of an election where a party has won in that kind of context. You know, so, for example, Jeremy Corbyn was doomed from day one, really, when Labour MPs tweeted when he got elected, uh, this is a disaster and, you know, all the rest of it. And you can vote for me because we'll never win. Uh, so don't worry, we won't be in government. All of that showed a party so divided and dysfunctional, um, they were going to lose. And part of the reason Labour lost in uh, 83 by it was slaughtered were the internal tensions were had become incredibly vivid and visible. And now as the Tory party have got, uh, you know, a split on so many different fronts, there's the kind of economic Thatcherites as represented by Sunak and Cameron. Um, you then have the English nationalists, Johnson, Braverman and people like that. You have some embryonic one nation Toryism, but it's a small group and so on. And when it's so visible, voters don't vote for split parties. It's why Harold Wilson was obsessed about trying to keep the Labour Party united at a point where the divisions were deep and represented by people uh, with a real power of language and charisma. And you have to manage parties. You know, the art of leadership, as I mentioned earlier, one of them, and not a bonus, you've got to do it. You've got to frame arguments and use language and create narratives and stories you have to do it all the time not least in an era of populism but you also have to do the hard grind of party management and it's tricky it used to be much harder for the Labour Party still difficult leading the Labour Party a very very challenging job but with the Tory party now they've become virtually unleadable and it will be a factor at the next election um, look, I'm going to stop now. I, I'm just going to say, uh, Andrew Kitching wrote a, a good question, which I'll, I'll try and get out there. Uh, Andrew, you also said uh, you've joined Patreon. Well, that's great, but you haven't had all the bonus podcasts. Well, you should do. You should be able to get straight in there once you've joined. So do do email me and I'll let Podmasters know if there are any issues with you accessing it. You'll There's a, a treasury of podcasts for you to enjoy um, in the coming weeks and uh, months. Uh, but if it's okay, as you can tell, my voice is a bit weak today. So I'm going to stop there. But thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, yeah, we've got a lot to uh, get through in our time together. Next time, I suspect there's a lot going on. Uh, and don't forget, book for King's Place. The, you can do it on their website or blurb for this uh, podcast. It's very near King's Cross station so you can come from virtually anywhere in the country if the trains are running and uh, yeah hopefully more of you subscribe to uh, patreon because it's fun it's not that expensive and you can do it as a kind of cheap christmas present to friends uh, and the book yeah don't forget uh, get the book as a present and i'm happy to sign labels with whatever message you want on them so yeah what a busy time we've had together i hope you've been running cooking i hope you haven't got this kind of lost voice that i'm suffering from and you, you don't catch it via a podcast, so you'll all be fine. Thanks so much. See you all soon. Bye. Bye.